Hello and welcome to the Legacy Church Sermons Podcast. At Legacy Church, we help people find their identity in Jesus and their place in His mission to impact the world through the gospel. We ask that you grab your Bibles, listen up, and we hope that you hear a great word from the Lord today. Well, good morning. My name's Justin. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. And I want to say happy Reformation Day. Um, October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nails his 95 theses onto the church door at the church at Wittenberg. And we sit here and stand here today because of the work of Jesus Christ alone, but we express our faith because of Martin Luther and many other men and women uh, who have come before us. And I'm a nerd, and so I just wanted to say that. Anyway, so... um, as a kid, any time that we would go from place to place in school, our teacher would line us up, make sure that we were quiet, and told us that we had to walk lip and hip, lip and hip, and just walk like that. It was boring. It was not fun. But that's the only way our teachers could get us to walk places. And for short treks, it wasn't bad. We could get there quickly, we could get there quietly, but the farther the destination, the more difficult it was to arrive without distraction. It would start with one of the kids in the back just kind of waving their hand out of the line, then it would be another kid shaking their foot, and then eventually it would be a kid making some weird noise like... Um, That that kid was me, let's be honest, that that kid was me. So, uh, it was difficult to control once it started. If our teacher did not get it under control early, it was hopeless to have us get back in order. Uh, In fact, I I do remember one time when one of the teachers yelled at us, and even as a little kid, I remember thinking, it's kind of awkward that it got to that point. Um, It's fun to act out. but that just shows our, our sinful nature, right? Um, but for the most part, I'm a rule follower. And I don't know if it's because I'm just an octogenarian in a young body, um, but I, I like to follow the rules. But when kids did something funny or did something they weren't supposed to, again, as humanity is, other kids would follow suit. The way the leader goes or a leader goes so goes the line. But the thing is, it's, it's not just kids that do that. Adults follow leaders as well. Whether it's viral TikTok trends, or the fashion we wear, the places that we frequent, even the way that we conduct our businesses. If there's a leader, we follow them. And the church is no different. In the first century, we see a group of people claiming to be Christians that are seeking to lead, but they're teaching false doctrine. Paul knew that the way church leaders go, so goes a church. And that's why today I want us to look at a passage where bad leadership needs to be rooted out. The moment a leader shakes their hand or shakes their foot, and it's not in accordance with the gospel, they need to be rooted out. And so as we've been walking through the pastoral epistles, we have seen what it looks like to be a true leader of the church. 
We have seen what is properly expected of them. We've seen how to serve and how to live as the family of God. And we've even seen how we should remember that our identity is in Christ when we have placed our faith and our trust in Him. And today, as we look at this last part of Titus chapter 1, we'll be talking about how we should use our words to speak correctly about God and how to correct those who do not speak rightly about Him. So if you remember, Titus is on the island of Crete in the Mediterranean Sea. There were churches on this island, but they were unorganized. A part of Titus's job was to organize them. He was tasked with setting the churches in order. And one way that he was supposed to establish order was by dealing with these false teachers that Paul writes to him about at the end of chapter 1. And as we will see, the people of Crete had a reputation for being idle, dishonest, and corrupt. And these traits were starting to infiltrate the Christian church. So because of this, Titus sought to motivate them to change. So if you have your Bible, turn to Titus chapter 1, and we'll begin in verse 9, and we'll go through 16 this morning. If you don't have your Bible, the verses will be on the screen. Now, the letter to Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 9, reads, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Verse 10, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work the word of the Lord. The reason I started at verse 9 is because it gives us a little bit of connective tissue between the first half of chapter 1 and the last half. Paul is telling Titus who should lead in the church in the first part and then uses verse 9 as a way to transition to why healthy leadership within a church is important. And why is it that healthy leadership is in need? It's because leaders need to know what healthy doctrine is, and they must be able to articulate it. They also need to be able to rebuke those who contradict such sound and healthy doctrine. Now, rebuke sounds like a harsh word, and I guess in, in some ways it has been because some people have used uh, a rebuke to harm or discourage people. And for that I have no words other than to say I'm sorry when being rebuked in an unhealthy, unfair manner happens. But a godly rebuke is something that's actually meant to educate and be restorative to the person. The word that Paul uses here and throughout this section is meant to help those who teach falsely be educated about what healthy, sound, true doctrine is. And it's supposed to help them be restored 
to the church that they claim to be a part of. It's not only Paul's intent for Titus, but should also be our intent that we offer a brother or a sister in Christ today. Anytime that we rebuke or offer a correction, it should be educative and it should be restorative. I shared a couple years ago during our series, that's my favorite verse, that there was a time uh, in my life early in ministry at another church where my senior pastor and my mentor rebuked myself and a fellow pastor because we were not ministering rightly. Um, He educated us, but he also restored us. It really, it really didn't feel good um, to to have that rebuke in that moment, but he did it well, he did it correctly. Um, And the desired effect happened. I was more wise, I was able to learn and grow and I had stronger relationship with him in the church as a part of that. And so sometimes I need to be told what it is to live and believe rightly. And I would imagine you do as well. We're people. We get it wrong from time to time. But I share this story to say that offering a, bu- a rebuke is not bad as long as it's done for the right and healthy reasons. So Paul's desire for the church was to be made aware of what was wrong so that the false teachers that he mentioned might have an opportunity to be restored to the fellowship of the Christians. But as you and I know, the ideal situation of repentance and restoration does not always happen. For many reasons, it does not always happen. But Paul's desire and church leadership's desire is that it would happen in a healthy and right manner. So in verse 10, as Paul moves on and we consider what he says in verse 10, he gives a threefold description of who these false teachers are. He first claims that uh, there are many of them and that they're insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. He also says that they're of the, the circumcision party. This is language to say or to imply that there are Jewish Christians who are stirring up these issues. And to be frank, it's not the first time that Jewish Christians caused some issues. The book of Galatians deals with this um, in the many issues. And so, uh, I was telling Pastor Kevin this morning, yesterday I listened to a podcast and and, uh, this professor talked about um, the Judaizers, these these Jewish Christians that were trying to add uh, work, man-made works onto the faith, um, that these Judaizers are kind of like asking you to donate or to subscribe to Disney Plus or ESPN Plus. It's Christianity Plus. It's this plus something else. Um, And the bad thing is, that's not what Christianity is. Christianity is that God loves us and he has saved us by grace through faith in Christ and Christ alone. So anyway, back to the threefold description. Uh, Paul describes them to Titus as insubordinate, meaning that they're not submissive. They're not submissive to church leaders, and they're not submissive to God's truth. To us, that seems contradictory. Why would you not submit yourself to the Word of God? And it is contradictory. How can one claim to be a Christian but not submit to the Word and the truth of God Himself? And yet, this is exactly what these false teachers are doing. They're choosing their own ideas and their own comfort and their money over submitting to what God has revealed for them and for all of Christians. Furthermore, these false teachers are empty talkers when they teach. 
What that means is that they're sharing opinions rather than teaching the revealed truth and will of God. And sharing opinions is not what the teacher or leader in the church is called to do. Rather, they're to rightly handle the Word of God and to share it with the people of God. They didn't want to be ministers of the Word. They wanted to be celebrities that they could have, so they could have power and prestige. And so whether in the church or elsewhere in life, I imagine we have all had a similar experience of someone teaching opinion as truth. We see it on Facebook or Meta or whatever it's called this week. We see, we see it at our jobs. We see it in our families. Opinions are good to have, but opinions compared to the truth of God are two totally different things. Titus must rebuke and stop those who give their opinions as solid facts. Because when the false teachers go against God's word, they preach their opinions and are deceiving Christians. After describing these false teachers by the three characteristics, Paul goes on to instruct Titus on what he must do to ensure proper order and peace within the church on Crete. And I'll be honest, as, as I read this and as I read the New Testament, I understand that a role like this is not for the shy, for the quiet, or the immature. They must silence false teachers because of what they're doing, and Titus is encouraged to be bold in the face of these lies. And so, Paul gives Titus that reason. He says that these teachers are upsetting whole families and doing so for shameful gain or sordid gain. This means that the false teachers were telling people uh, not only what was wrong, but they were doing so in order that they might be paid. These false teachers knew that what they were doing was wrong, but they wanted money, and so they were still doing it. In teaching a different gospel, a different gospel than that of Christ's, whole family units were being upset and they found themselves without peace. So, there is some disagreement among scholars as to what Paul meant by whole households. There's some that interpret this as entire family units that lived under one roof. They were upset, they were confused by what the false teachers were saying. So, if a wife or a son believed something that was different than the rest of the family, of course, there's going to be disagreement and frustration in that household. As one commentator mentioned, the whole family would be upset by the perversion of one member of it. But there are other scholars that believe that this means whole house churches were being upset. During this period of time, there were no fancy church buildings, uh, no lights, no TV screens. Uh, most churches met in the homes of members. And we know through Scripture and through our experience that the people of God are known as the family of God. So because of this, whole house churches might have been upset because of this false teaching. Regardless of how you interpret the saying of whole families, Christians were experiencing pain, confusion, and frustration. And that's exactly why Paul commanded, Timothy, uh, commanded Titus to rebuke these false teachers. These false teachers were not true servants of God, 
Otherwise, they would not be distorting the gospel and leading people astray. In fact, they were teaching things that were not necessary to salvation or to the Christian life. These false teachers were essentially advocating for a works-based system of salvation, which we know both through the Old Testament and the New Testament that salvation is a gift of God. It is by grace through faith in Christ and Christ alone. But these teachers on Crete were trying to make salvation something that it's not. Namely, that salvation was by a person's own doing. These teachers were not serving God, they were serving themselves. Warren Wearsby commented, A true servant of God does not minister for personal gain. He or she ministers to help others grow in the faith. It's clear from this passage that these false teachers did not care about who they ministered to as long as they made money. But that's not the way of God or the way of His people. If you think back through the stories of the gospel, gospels, Jesus and His disciples, as they taught, as He healed, as they ministered, it wasn't some get-rich-quick scheme. Rather, Jesus loved and cared for people. His desire was to set people free from the, their sin and to restore them and make way for relationship with God. When I think of legacy, there's not anyone that comes to mind that I can think of that desires power or prestige over ministering for the right reasons. And praise be to God for that. We must not ever look for the things that we can get out of a role for the reason why we're participating. But there may be a day when you encounter someone like that. Whether it's in our life group, at a Bible study, at work, in our family, we may encounter people that desire a platform for influence and they're doing it for the wrong reason. My hope is that we are wise and that we are discerning so that we may be able to recognize it be able to speak to that person, rebuke them if need be, if they are in the faith, so that they do not fall into the trap that these false teachers did on Crete. In verse 12, Paul quotes Epimenides, a well-known and highly esteemed philosopher from the 6th century BC. The quote is honestly kind of derogatory. (laughs) Um, And Paul Uh, Like Paul, Epimenides gives a threefold description of the Cretans. He says that they are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. I don't know about you, but I don't think that's a good description. I don't want to be described that way. Um, But because Paul applies this quote to these false, false teachers, he's saying that it is true. It's a trustworthy statement. Why is that? Because when you teach something that is false, you in essence are a liar, you're evil, and you're lazy in the things that you have to say. A half-truth is still not the whole truth. It's still not truth. And it struck me this week as I was preparing for this message how easily that quote could be applied to me or to anyone else that preaches or teaches. 
If I don't study, if I don't trust the Holy Spirit, if I do not wrestle with the words of God, but I still preach my opinions or my views, I too can become a liar, evil, and lazy. The purpose of preaching is to glorify God and help equip and encourage fellow Christians. We use the Word of God as our final and ultimate authority in matters of life and faith, and that's why we preach from the Bible. If I or anyone else like me preaches from something different, we're not serving the body of Christ. We're only serving ourselves. And in that way, we are liars, evil, and lazy, just like these false teachers. Because these teachers had influence in the church on Crete, it's evident that they claimed to be Christians. And because they claimed to be a part of the church, that's why Titus is commanded to rebuke them sharply. As I previously mentioned, rebuking a person is to have education and a restoration aspect to it. Paul's desire for Titus is to rebuke these false teachers so that they may learn from their wrong and be restored to the fellowship so that they have a more solid or orthodox faith. Correction and discipline in the church should never be the desire, should never have the desire to kick someone out. Rather, discipline should be dealing with error so that those teaching wrongly can be corrected and restored to healthy fellowship. It depends on the error whether or not it's a gentle rebuke or a harsh one. The error on Crete and the personalities of these teachers were deemed worthy of a sharper rebuke. Matthew Henry says, Timothy had a more gentle people to rebuke. That's why he needed to rebuke with meekness. Titus, however, dealt with more rough and uncultured people. That's why he had to rebuke sharply. It makes me think years ago, I, I drove uh, parts out to oil rigs, and uh, the Lord loves those men that work those rigs, but they are rough. And the language and the personality that I had to have while on those drilling sites were a lot different than I had to have with other people. The people you're around, their personalities determine whether it's a gentle or a sharp rebuke. Anyway, uh, as I read this passage, I, I thought through the different areas of ministries that I serve in, that I lead in, that I participate in, and that my desire for teaching should be without error but so should my life. Now, I still sin, and I'm not perfect, but I do seek to live a life in accordance to the truth. When I was in seminary, we, we often talked about our orthodoxy, our right belief, but also our orthopraxy, our, our right actions. Um, and in order for us to have a healthy, vibrant, growing relationship, with the Lord. Our orthodoxy and our orthopraxy must be in step with one another. If I walk outside the step with outside of the step with the spirit, I am not walking as I should. Again, I'm not saying perfection. I'm saying trusting the spirit as he leads. I I want us to know and understand that what these things, these false teachers were saying, not only caused beliefs to be wrong, but it also impacted the way people lived, and therefore 
they did not have orthodoxy or orthopraxy. And in fact, nothing was in line with the gospel. That's why Paul implores Titus to correct and rebuke these teachers at that time, because by allowing them to continue, they would only create more harm for the church, for themselves. As one commentator put it, failure to confront problems within the church, whether theologically or practically based, may be uh, indicative of a basic indifference with regard to God's truth or the nurturing of truly Christian relationships. The fear of giving offense and a highly individualized view of personal faith may discourage church leaders from following the biblical mandate to rebuke. The restoration that is possible both in fellowship and in sound doctrine is compromised by the reluctance to confront. Loving, sensitive, yet firm confrontation can result in stronger relationships and restored unity or perhaps a needed purging of those who deny the truth. So what is this commentator getting at? Essentially this, doctrine and relationships are of the utmost importance for the church. And when a leader does not rebuke fellow Christians for false doctrine, they are doing harm to the entire church. Encouraging and promoting healthy faith should remain a goal of all those who lead within the church. And verse 14 clarifies even more what was being taught. We already know that they were Jewish Christians, and we know from parts of the New Testament kind of their ideology and their practices, but Paul gives a little more clarification here in verse 14. He says that they are focusing on Jewish myths and the commands of other people. Scriptures tell us what we should do in order to follow Jesus and to be a vital part of the church, but these false teachers spend so much time focusing on the wrong things. They wanted people to devote themselves to myths and med-main commandments instead of following Jesus and walking by the power of the Spirit. And that's the danger you and I face today as well. There are many in the world who tell us if we want to be a good person, a spiritual person, person, a contributing member of society, we must act, look, or think a certain way. Yet when investigated, we see that their foundation for what they think constitutes a good or spiritual person is found nowhere in the scriptures. And at the very least, it's devoid of the work and the person of Jesus Christ. My concern for us is that we are allowing the voices of others to form us and tell us how we should look instead of what God calls us to. God has provided all that we need through the person and work of Jesus Christ, has empowered us by His Spirit who indwells Christians, and has given us given us his word. Verse 15, as it's connected to 14, Paul closes this section and gives this pithy, almost proverbial statement. He says that to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Uh, Now, there have been many people that have interpreted this in the past um, and used it wrongly. And so, the context of this verse and the context of what the false teaching is, whenever it comes to man-made commandments, appears to be in regard to ceremonial cleanliness and the food that is eaten. Therefore, what Paul is saying is all food is pure to those who are Christians because there is no need for an outward cleanliness. But for those who do not believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, their minds 
and their bodies are still corrupted, and no amount of ritual cleansing, no amount of abstaining from food will make them clean before God, because God desires our faith in Jesus, not what we do externally. Though He cares how we live out our faith, we do not earn His favor first by doing works to come to Him. And the lies and the teaching of these people were doing more damage to the church because they were calling Christians to take a step back and reject the cleansing that Christ had given them as believers. The reason Paul included the minds and consciences of these false teachers uh, is because he knew that they had not received the renewing of their minds and their will. You know, it's easy for false teachers to look good and clean on the outside, but on the inside they're still decaying. They have not been made new. And so as we bookend this pericope, Paul again gives another threefold description of these unregenerate unregenerate false teachers. He says they are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. The reason for that is because they're denying God by their works. Paul uses strong language because he wants to be clear that he was exposing error and sin because they were adding to the gospel. But here's the thing, Paul did not want to throw them out of the church He wanted them to confess and repent. Being rebuked is not meant to be harsh punishment, but rather meant to lead people to repentance by knowing the truth. What these false teachers were telling the church was wrong. They did not know God. They did not speak His truth. Just because they or we have ideas about God, if those ideas are not clearly revealed in Scripture, we should not trust them. John Calvin, in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, said, Just as old or bleary-eyed men and those with weak vision, if you thrust before them a most beautiful volume, even if they recognize it to be some sort of writing, yet can scarcely construe two words, but with the aid of spectacles, will begin to read distinctly. So Scripture, gathering up the otherwise confused knowledge of God in our minds, having dispersed our dullness, clearly shows us the true God. Here's, here's what Calvin, in a more articulate way, is getting to than what I can get to. Scripture reveals to us who God is. Just because we have ideas does not mean that is true, no matter how firmly we believe it. God has revealed Himself to us through His Word. So let us read so that we know, so that we have healthy and sound doctrine. The marks of a true Christian are a genuine relationship with God and conduct that grows in holiness or being set apart or um, looking more like the character and likeness of Jesus Christ. But the marks of false teachers are absent of those important qualities. If someone claims to know God but their actions show otherwise, they are selfish and worldly. Titus was commanded to put a stop to, these false teach, to this false teaching early on because it's easier to root out something early than let it dig down deep. And because it would set an example for the elders on Crete that he was supposed to appoint. Church leadership must know what and how to do it when it comes to false teaching. So, I've given you 30 minutes or so of running commentary. 
I, I hope I've helped you understand what this section's saying. But what are we supposed to do with the passage? How do we apply it to our lives? Because I believe that whether or not you're in church leadership, we're still responsible for looking at the Word of God and applying it to our lives. So, what must we do? Well, the first thing is that we must know the truth of the gospel. This means not only trusting in Jesus Christ, but it also means knowing what exactly the gospel is. There's a God who loves us, but we have a problem called sin. That sin separates us relationally from God, but God desires that relationship. Yet He can't be in the presence of sin, so what does God do? God sends His one and only Son, Jesus Christ, to live the perfect life that none of us can live, to die the death that none of us can handle, to be raised by the power of God so that He can defeat death, pay the payment for our sin, and secure for us the right to know God through relationship. That relationship is by grace, by God's unmerited favor, through faith in Christ, in Christ alone. That's, that's the gospel. And once we trust Christ, knowing God, He begins to reform us, redeem us, to make our affections and our desires and our minds new. And so that's what we must know. We must know the Word of God. We must know what the gospel is. But the second thing we must do is speak the truth of the gospel. That means when we talk to others, whether in church, in our homes, at our workplaces, in our life groups, that we share the truth of the gospel. We share the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And it also means that we do not shy away We don't add to it. We don't take away from it. God has revealed to us what we are to know and to believe, and we're called to share that. And that is a part of disciple-making. And then the final thing that we must do, correct falsehood in life and doctrine. That means that we know God and the Scriptures well enough that we can lovingly, graciously, yet firmly correct those that are teaching contrary to the truth. What it doesn't mean is that we can correct or get angry over secondary or tertiary doctrines. It doesn't mean that we can correct or get angry over people who are not yet in Christ. It means that if we love people and they claim to be a Christian, that we help them understand healthy doctrine, sound doctrine. If what they teach or what they say impacts salvation or the way that we obtain it, then you correct it. When we know the gospel and when we speak to those around us in church, in our life group, in our homes, those that we work with, those that we have Bible study with, when we can graciously yet firmly correct the falsehood of false teachers, we can do so with a spirit that is humble, that desires to educate that person, and then restore them to the fellowship of the church. If they do not turn from their falsehood, that's not on you. They have made their decision. But as much as it is up to you of teaching and speaking true and sound doctrine, be faithful and clear. Just like walking in line as an elementary student, the moment someone gets out of line, it's easier to lovingly correct them so that the health and well-being of the group is not jeopardized. 
As Christians, we should love all people so that we can encourage them to be in relationship with Jesus Christ. Those that teach false things about God do not know Him, and they lead others astray. So let us, as a church, as a church of life groups, as brothers and sisters in Christ, let us be people that lovingly correct falsehood in our spheres of influence for the glory of God and for the sake of those around us. Let us pray. Lord God, I, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart this week came forth in this message. God, I pray that uh, I led this church well this morning, that I helped them to see your word, to open it, and to encourage them to walk faithfully and obediently in you. Lord God, if there is something uh, of falsehood in our minds, in our doctrine, in our theology, would you please reveal that to us so that we can confess it, repent of it, and move towards you in sound and healthy ways. Lord, I thank you for this church. I thank you that they desire to glorify you, that they desire to, to point to you and say, this is God. He loves us. He cares for us. And he wants to be in relationship with you. Let us go forth in loving and serving one another. God, I pray uh, that we trust you wholly and we trust you with every part of our minds and our might and our soul. God, we pray these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.